Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. In this episode of The Everyday Millionaire, I'm joined by my friend and an accomplished RAIN member, lady by the name of Andrea Warkington. Now, along with being a successful real estate investor and entrepreneur, she's got a very interesting story that she shared. And I wanna start by just giving a little bit of background. She was born and raised in British Columbia, where she went to Simon Fraser University and earned her degree in criminology and psychology. That led her to spending six years as a police officer in the city of Vancouver, on the east side, by the way. As a cop, she dealt with everything from the skid row drugs and crime that went on to being an undercover prostitute and a drug user. And she even did a stint in the riot squad. As she says, I've been gassed, I've been tasered, I've gone toe to toe with the bad guys in the street fights. And sadly, she's seen some death. It was during that time that she realized she just couldn't see herself enforcing the law for the next 30 years and Probably as importantly for her, she couldn't see herself counting on a pension that was under the management of the provincial government. She just wasn't confident. So at the same time as taking on the challenges of learning and being a top performing police officer, she began her journey to learning and understanding how she could create and build a foundation for her family's financial future. And so like many people do, Andrea began reading and studying. Particularly for her, it was mostly about personal development and financial mastery. She devoured everything from the wealthy barber to rich dad, poor dad, and Don Campbell's real estate investing in Canada, and along with some books on understanding the stock market. Now, not unlike many of the everyday millionaires that I meet and speak with, Andrea's journey of learning brought her to a fork in her life's road. And Andrea chose the one less traveled. Today, more than 10 years later, Andrea has and continues to thoughtfully build not just a financial foundation for her family's future, but a life and a lifestyle that is intentional and by design. From being a woman with a career in the male-dominated world of policing to starting her business of investing in real estate while being a mom and raising two children, Andrea has not only learned to face adversity, but to grow and thrive. She makes a conscious effort every day to being a contribution in supporting the success of others. And I'm just really honored to have her on the show and have the conversation with her. Join me now as I chat with my friend and a very cool lady, Andrea Workington. Andrea, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. 
I'm excited to have you on the show. Looking forward to our discussion today. And uh, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me on your show today. Well, listen, thanks for taking the time to be here with us. I want to get to work right away because I'm we got a lot of ground to cover and I want to uh, ask you some, I want to get going with Andrea Workington. Now, you do a, a number of things and, and I've gotten to know you a little bit over the years simply because you're a member of RAIN of the Real Estate Investment Network and because you show up as one of the leaders in the community, you know, I'm certainly have had the opportunity to have brief discussions with you in the past. You've been on our stage and on a couple of panels. Bring me up to date. If I was to ask you what you do today, if you were to give me a bit of an elevator pitch, what would that sound like? What would Andrea be saying about what she does? Well, I do a lot of masterminding. I have really embraced the mastermind model of working together with like-minded people to help everyone in the group move forward. And that's what I'm really excited about right now is masterminding with some real estate partners and setting goals and holding each other accountable and just moving forward. And I love that structure. And just for the listeners, I mean, real estate is the game that you primarily play today, but it hasn't always been that way. So take me on the journey a little bit because you've got a pretty cool and interesting story. From my perspective, you are you were in, on the police force, I believe, in British Columbia at one time? Yes, I was in Vancouver Police Department for six years, and it was a lot of fun <laughs> and a big learning curve. Yeah, it was interesting. Well, now you're in the world of real estate. You're an entrepreneur. You're, you know, technically, not even technically, you really are self-employed. You treat your real estate investing like a business. Uh, it's a big part of what you do. But take me back to a time when you were on the police force. So that was, you came out of university or college or whatever that was for you, post-secondary? Was, that was the game that you played? Yeah, I went to Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia, with the goal of becoming a police officer. Um, I've always been a very goal-oriented person. And so going into university, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I did my research. I found out what the qualifications were to become a police officer in Vancouver. And they had certain preferred qualifications. So I made sure that I fulfilled all of those, like volunteer work. I did a lot of volunteer work with the police department learning another language. So I learned Spanish, uh, supervisory experience. I worked at the mall as a security guard <laughs> for a few years while I was going to university. So mall cop, here we are. Especially <laughs> <laughs> done. Yeah. So I, I always knew what I wanted to do. And I knew that if I drew out kind of a roadmap for myself, that I was destined to succeed. And so that's how I approached policing. And I've always loved to read books. And so while I first got into policing, I was living on my own and, and didn't have enough money for TV. So I read a lot of books and that kind of led me to the next part of my journey. But I, I knew that policing, once I got there, it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of room for advancement and it was not exactly what I thought it would be, but it was it was still a very challenging career. Well, tell me a little bit about your career as an officer, because you got a you went in. I think you became a detective. You did some work on the street. Give me a little bit of background about that, because it, it's pretty 
for me, it's interesting. And I think it's also part of the development of your character and, and how you show up even today in the world of real estate. And I want to kind of, but I want to work forward from that. So give me a little more detail about what was like being an officer. What's some of the learning that you had back then? Well, when I graduated uh, police academy, I went straight to Skid Row. Uh, for those of you who don't know where Skid Row is, it's basically Maine and Hastings in downtown Vancouver. It's the uh, poorest postal code in all of Canada, or was at that time. That was back in 1999 when I joined the police department. It was very eye-opening. When you see how people who are addicted to drugs um, live, it's very sad. It's very disheartening uh, what addiction can do to people. But as a police officer, you kind of have to keep your emotion out of it. Um, you can't let emotion take over, whether that would be anger or despair or frustration. We always hold ourselves to a higher standard. And I'll never forget um, one of the police chiefs that we had said that he wanted us to conduct ourselves as if he was sitting in the police car with us all the time. So if it's not moral, ethical and legal, we don't do it. And it was just it's a very high standard when you're surrounded by the lowest of the low. If you want to know what a, a $10 hooker looks like, it's actually pretty sad. If you want to know what family disputes look like on a consistent basis, it's pretty sad. And so that, that kind of framed my first three years was, was seeing the worst in people, you know, not a whole lot of bright light shining through. And when I transitioned out of that into the richest neighborhood, which was closer to UBC, it was all about big fancy houses and their alarm calls. <laughs> so it was quite the difference. And I did that for about six months and I kind of found it boring actually, but I was just so used to the go, go, go of, of working in the Skid Row area and then transitioning again into becoming a detective. And that was kind of my goal. My goal, if I had stayed in the police department, I would already be in a homicide detective by now. That was my goal. You know, going in, thinking about becoming a police officer, that was the end game, was to get to the highest level of becoming a detective. So I knew that the, the first step was to, be, to start at the bottom, like you do with everything else. So I became a property crime detective for my last year and a half of policing. And it was, it was interesting. I've done everything from being undercover, both as a prostitute and as a drug buyer, to um, being on the riot squad and having stuff thrown at me <laughs> in the big puffy suit. So it was quite a ride, for sure. That's fascinating. Cause I, and I'm also, you know, as I listen to you share with us those insights or that, that story, that background, I can see how that would play into even that development of your character and and who you are today and who you show up as and who you're known for. What was the tipping point for you? When did you kind of wake up one day and say, you know, something, this isn't for me. You had had laid out this plan and you had actually started to execute on your plan. You were pretty clear on what it was going to be coming out of university and developing into a great police officer, potentially a homicide detective. Did you wake up one day and go, I'm just going to do real estate? Like, how did that shift happen for you? Well, I've always loved to read books. And I started realizing a couple years into my policing that 
although the, the job is somewhat helping people, it's not exactly what I expected. The support from my boss, uh, I had n- numerous different bosses over the years, but the support, you know, on a patrol level of my sergeant, most of the time wasn't there. They were off drinking coffee with their buddies. And, and I had one excellent sergeant who, who always checked in with us and made sure that we had everything we needed. But that was the exception. And if you did something wrong, you know, you were burned at the stake for it. (laughs) And it was, it was not, um, really a culture where people had each other's backs on a corporate level. If you understand what I mean by that, when you're out on the road and it's life or death, absolutely. Everyone's got your back. But when you're climbing that corporate ladder, whether it would be to get to the next level or of leadership or even climbing in the detective rank, there is a lot of people who would do what it, whatever it took to get themselves ahead. And I didn't like that culture. I think it's quite prevalent in, in normal corporate culture as well. But I didn't really like that culture and I didn't want to work for 30 years for a pension that may or may not be handled well by the government. And so I started to read different financial books. So everything from The Wealthy Barber to Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I really enjoyed the Robert Kiyosaki books. So I started reading everything that he had. And it wasn't until 2005, when I was four months pregnant with my oldest child, that I heard Don Campbell being interviewed on talk radio. Uh, about real estate investing in Canada. And that was the first time I'd heard of a, a real estate book specific to Canada. So I went out and bought it, liked the model. I'd read about stock investing and opening up your own business and all sorts of other things that a lot of the Kiyosaki books talk about. But I, I decided that real estate sounded like the best opportunity because not only do you put very little money in and have the bank lend you the rest, but you have other things on your side like appreciation and cash flow. So that really made up my mind to to choose real estate after hearing the interview with Don Campbell and getting the book Real Estate Investing in Canada. So I bought the book probably around July, June or July, and I joined the Rain Group right away. And got my weekend CDs in the mail, <laughs> listened to them in, in August. And then um, my husband and I decided at the time that we would move to Alberta to Red Deer because it was on the top 10 places to invest in. And it was actually kind of his idea, which is kind of funny. <laughs> so you and your husband moved to Red Deer. That's a bold move. Yes. Um, it was a very bold move because we only knew one person in Red Deer, which was a childhood friend of my husband. But at some point you just have to take a step and, and, and move forward. And that's what we did is we just said, well, let's go for it. We're young enough to recover from this. If it doesn't work out, we can always move back, but let's just jump in with two feet and go for it. And that's what we did. Now, what did you do when you first moved to Red Deer? Did you go right into the real estate world or did you get a job for a while first? No, I had, uh, my daughter was two and a half months old. And so w- the fourplex that we bought, we moved into and we purposely bought it vacant. We had uh, the couple of tenants evicted from it. It needed a lot of work. 
And uh, my husband already had a job lined up for $10 an hour more in Red Deer at that time than he was getting in Vancouver. And he's a plumber by trade. So, you know, he's a skilled guy. And so for the first month, we just started renovating one of the suites for us to live in. And then he went to work. And on evenings and weekends, we just worked on the fourplex, getting it ready for tenants. So it took about six months for us to get the whole building done inside and out and get it all filled up. And by that time, the market started to rise. So we were in a great position. Tell me a little bit about you know, the move from Vancouver, when we look at individuals who've achieved some, you know, great results, and you fall certainly fall into that category. How are you dealing with, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of stress, and there's a lot of concern, and there was a lot of questions. You know, it's not just as simple as we're young, we'll recover. What was what was it for you? Was there a, a the deeper process was how did you handle the stress and the concerns that you might have had with your husband and just with your within your own thought process? Well, it was very tough because um, having a two and a half month old baby while moving with no support around me, not knowing anyone, my husband's friend really didn't count <laughs> in helping me, but um, it was difficult. But I think my desire to succeed weighed over a lot of it. When I get my hooks in something, I just keep moving forward and tackling it until it's done. For my husband, it was a bit different. He was very used to spending a lot of time with his family that live in Chilliwack. And so it was very tough for him. And that first year that we were in Red Deer, we had a lot of people come and visit us, which was nice, including his parents. And they stayed for a little while and helped us with some of the renovations but I think that we saw a future for ourselves in Red Deer that we couldn't get for ourselves in Vancouver. If I had stayed in the police department and gone back to work after my maternity leave, I would have had to hire a nanny to look after my daughter. And that's just A, unaffordable, and B, not the kind of life I wanted for my daughter was to be raised by somebody else. And so I think those desires of, of being able to stay at home with my daughter while doing real estate, it's cheaper to live in Alberta than it is to live in Vancouver. Certainly in Red Deer, the price of housing is less. Everything costs less here except for maybe fresh fruit. And my husband is very money conscious. And so for him, the money made sense. He was in a, a new job that he was getting paid more. And he enjoyed living out here. So it made it easier, I think, because we were on the same page, A, about moving here, and B, that we both saw the opportunity financially to get ahead. And so we figured it was worth, the, the trade-off was worth it. So. When you chose to leave the force, I mean, that was obviously a fork in the road. You know, you saw the fork in the road being the opportunity for real estate after reading the books that you read, after listening to Don, and then reading the book, Real Estate Investing in Canada, and you chose that fork in the road. Now, there's still an, an entrepreneurial spirit that somewhere exists for you. 
Do you think that was always underlying? Now you because you 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 embarked on the journey of being an entrepreneur, which is real estate, you know, investing in real estate. Has that showed up for you as going, yeah, this is really what I was cut out to do? Was there is there been an epiphany? Has there been a moment where you just realized that being an entrepreneur and having the business of investing in real estate is, you know, aside from that, are you really driven to be that business owner, that entrepreneurial, you know, having that entrepreneurial spirit that you have? That's an interesting question. I don't think until I started real estate that I ever thought of myself as an entrepreneur. Um, I was never the kind of kid that had the lemonade stand out uh, on the street corner or, you know, thinking of mowing people's lawns or anything like that growing up. I think that for me, it was the desire to move ahead financially was really based on how I grew up. So my growing up, my parents lived paycheck to paycheck. So I experienced what life was like that way. It was always stressful for my parents. They never had enough money. We moved a lot. My dad seemed to always make decisions without asking my mom, <laughs> which led to more stress. Both my parents had to work. And so I didn't want that same lifestyle for myself. I'd lived it. And I think a lot of my desire to succeed has come from that. That's interesting that, you know, you saw the gap for you and, you know, you step into that gap and you fill that gap with what needed to be filled, which was a big deal. I mean, you moved, it was the fork in the road, you left the forest, which at some level had security. It was also part of your initial plan. It's what you really went to university for. Did you not get your degree in what criminology? What was the degree in again? Criminology and psychology, which is not useful for anything, really. <laughs> Note to self. Okay, well, that's good, though. Now, I want to go back a little bit here or, or kind of go in a little different direction. You know, my observation is, and it's maybe it's just the nature of the world, but, you know, you're a female in a predominantly male world, number one, as an officer, as a police officer, and then into the world of real estate. And you're basically, you know, you did a lot of that on your own. You were leading the way, although you were supported originally from your husband. Now you and your husband are at some point parted ways and, and you're on your own in that regard. But in your training with the force, was that part of what set you up to have the success you have today? Once again, you know, being a female in a predominantly male world and doing what you're doing, how's that for you? I think that's a good observation. One of the many things that we learn in the police department is that our life is on the line every day and we have to be willing to fight right to the end. If it ever comes to that situation where you're in a life and death struggle with somebody, you can never give up. You have to keep moving forward. And it's the same kind of thinking that's drilled into your mind in supporting your fellow officers. You never leave a man behind. It doesn't matter what it is. Like in training at the police academy, we had different physical exercises where we only went at the speed of the slowest person, or we encouraged that slower person to, to do better. So it was a lot of mental strength 
the goal is always to get home alive. (laughs) And so I think a lot of that drive and determination comes from that in terms of, I, I can remember my first day on the job. When you go to police academy in British Columbia, you do three months of school, then three months on the road, and then another three months of school before you graduate. So your first three months on the road is actually training. So you're with a training officer. And I remember my very first day, I was scared. And I said to him, he's like, we're going to, we hop in the car and he says, we're going to go for coffee. And so, okay. I said to him, whatever you tell me to do, I am going to do. You just tell me and I will follow you. And so that was my attitude is I was willing to learn from somebody who was a very skilled trainer. He was very good at his job. And I was just very open as a sponge to soak it all in. And it's everything from how you hold yourself to keeping your head up straight, looking people in the eye, your tone of voice. All of that makes a huge difference in how you conduct yourself. I often found that as a woman in a mostly man's world, it was actually in many cases easier for me because men don't feel as threatened by women, police officers in general. So I found that a lot of times it was easier for me in dealing with people But in dealing with fellow officers, I definitely had to portray the strength that any other man would portray in order to be respected. Well said. That is interesting. If you were to, when you're having that conversation with that particular officer who was training you, did you realize that, number one, I guess you realized that you had to be coachable? And that you were going to listen to somebody who had paved the path for you? Do you think you were that way by nature? Now, you and I, and I'm asking this question, you know, Andrea, because you and I are both coaches. We coach a lot of people. We spend a lot of time supporting others to succeed. And my own experience with it is that often what gets people in people's way is that as much as they want to be coached, as much as they want to hear somebody give them a path to go down, they're really not coachable. And so what, as I'm listening to you, I'm going, you're listening to this particular police officer. You have to be really coachable. You, If there's an observation I have of you in the time I've got to know you a little bit, is that is my observation. If you were giving another female, another woman guidance, would you say that that's something that you see as an absolute must in that, in fact, people aren't coachable and that they need to be? Yeah, I think that... A lot of times we don't know how much we don't know. And us going to, for example, uh, a seminar that teaches us about something is, is, is totally different than actually going out and doing it. And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck is they have the head knowledge, but they don't take action. And so as a coach, that's the biggest thing to do is to get people to take action, to get them out of their comfort zone. And certainly for me, that first day is, as a police officer was totally out of my comfort zone. I have a gun on my hip. I'm expected to, to do something. 
you know, to fulfill that mandate of a police officer. And I, I think it's the same thing with real estate investors is you can take as many courses as you want, but until you're, you're willing to, to really listen and to the experts and, and follow through with what they say. And it's amazing, you know, even just calling somebody on Kijiji with a house for sale, somebody who's self-identified themselves as wanting to talk to people who are in the business of buying houses, which is us real estate investors. A lot of people have fear over that, to, to have that initial conversation. And they feel like, well, what do I say? It's like, well, if this was a house that you were going to buy for yourself to live in, what do you think you would say? <laughs> How many bedrooms and bathrooms does it have? But somehow people just have fear of taking action. You show up as very confident and you speak confidently, you carry yourself confidently. Has it always been that way for you? I've been a fairly confident person, but I think that being in the police department probably even doubled or tripled that. It's all about how you hold yourself, how you talk to people. A lot of policing was listening because you have to listen to both sides of the story because the truth lies somewhere in between. And although we make instant judgments all the time, everyone does, not just police officers, quite often there's another aspect that we're missing. So if we make an instant judgment without taking the time to get to know somebody or to know the full details of the situation, we miss out. And when we're too busy talking and not doing enough listening, we often can miss the golden nuggets from learning from somebody's situation or their experience or how we can help them or be of service. So those are definitely a few of the things that have helped me over the years. So yeah, Stephen Covey's quote, you know, seek first to understand and then to be understood really shows up as a way to get information and then gain the confidence that you have in whatever conversation you're having more by listening than by talking. Is that kind of that path that you go down? Exactly. And I think it's easy for us to, to think that we know everything, but then you'll meet somebody who's that quiet millionaire who doesn't look like anybody special in terms of what the world would say by fancy clothes, a car or anything like that. But they're the person that's, you know, been doing business for 40 or 50 years and you just made an idiot of yourself because you assume that they were some uneducated hick, right? So I think that one thing that I've learned is definitely when we're talking to people about investing, we can't assume what they know or don't know. So it's better to ask questions than try to come off as the person that's the expert. Yeah, great insights, great advice, actually. I want to go down a slightly different path. So, you know, you've, you've achieved the success that you've achieved. You own uh, quite a lot of real estate. You've grown a really great net worth. And, you know, I know that you would describe yourself as a pretty common everyday kind of person. And, and of course the whole, you know, for me, the context for the everyday millionaire is that those individuals that would describe themselves as pretty common have achieved pretty uncommon results. And that would be how I would describe you. And that's how I view you in the time that I've gotten to know you and, and watch your own growth 
watch you, you know, grow the portfolio that you've grown and, and how you participate in the community. Not, not all of the people that I interview actually are part of the rain community. You happen to be. So I get to be kind of that person that observes and, and actually hears about the impact that you have on people's lives. So you've gained a lot of traction in, in learning and becoming the expert and there's growth and there's a, there's a journey that takes place along that. And not every day is a great day. So for you with your training and process that you've gone through to achieve the results you've achieved, when you're just having a bad day, when it's just like crap's hitting the fan and nothing's going right, what's your approach to how do you handle those tough days? Because I want to go down another path in a moment, but how do you handle those tough days? Well, I've done a lot of mindset work in the last couple of years, and I think that that's missing in a lot of people's lives is, is mindset training because really 80% of, of life is mindset and 20% is action. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunity to go through some of those highs and lows and learn how to turn them all into positives. So before, when I used to have a bad day, I would let my stinking thinking get to me. And usually what would happen is it would paralyze me. But I learned that not doing anything is not effective. So over the years, what I've learned to do is to tackle the hard items up front. If I've made a mistake and I need to have that hard conversation with the investor, then I just go ahead and I be proactive. I don't hide about it. Hey, look, I made a mistake. This is what happened. I just wanted you to know up front. And people realize that nobody's perfect and I'm not perfect and I'm going to make a mistake. So I try to have any hard conversation, whether it's real estate related or, or just with friends, I try to have that up front. If I realize that I've done something wrong, then let's, let's get it out up front. And if I'm having a bad day now, well, I like to start with gratitude. I wake up in the morning and I think of a few things that I'm grateful for. And it really helps set my um, attitude for the day. And every time I run into a situation where it wasn't great or something unexpected happened that was either in my control or not in my control, I'm training myself to think about how I can be grateful for that situation because uh, another quote that I lo love is you either you succeed or you learn. Mm. So failure isn't a word that I use in my vocabulary, either I succeed or I learn. And when you have that attitude of keeping moving forward one step at a time, the only way to, to succeed at something is to learn many times and be out of the comfort zone. And it really just gives me an attitude of thankfulness for what I do have. And, and it gives me a lot of excitement for everything that I can achieve that I, I haven't achieved yet. So a lot of it for me is just all mental attitude. You know, it's interesting. A number of years ago, a good friend of mine, very, very wealthy. We were in the Caribbean on his boat and I was just going to take the time because we're, you know, we're out in the middle of the ocean. We're kind of just relaxing. And I said, you know, I'm not going to miss this opportunity to kind of questioned my buddy on how he achieved such great results. And, you know, I was sitting there and I asked him, I, you know, I said, Brian, I said, you know, you've, you've achieved so much. 
how is it that you've managed to do this? And he said to me, I just don't make mistakes. And in that moment, I went, it struck me as like, like, I didn't know what to say to that because it kind of came to me as a little bit arrogant and like, what do you, you know, and I'm having all this self-talk. And so anyways, the good news is I didn't say anything. And probably 30 seconds or 45 seconds later, he said, I just get a result. And it's either a result I want or it's a result I don't want. And if it's something I don't want, I either put in the correction or I just give up on that. I don't want to do it. It's not the result I want. So people hold things as a mistake. Your languaging and what you said is about failure. You don't hold it as a failure. You just hold it as something to learn. And he held it as something to learn and then to move forward with to make the adjustment to actually, you know, have the success or to achieve the result that he wanted. And it's just a it goes back to what you were saying earlier. It's just it is really a mental, I don't know, attitude is the right word, but ultimately it's how you view what just transpired and you don't hold it as a failure. You hold it as a learning. Brian didn't hold it as a mistake. It was just, okay, now I need to put in the correction. You know, I need to re, I need to adjust my course. And that's how he approached it. I think that's a consistent message is I've talked to other people who have changed, excuse me, achieved the results such as you. Now I want to go off on another tangent here, a little bit down a, once again, you're female and when I've interviewed other people, and I know this is my own experience, is that I often say that I'm really not the success I am without the support of my wife, Stephanie, in this case. Now, you were married, and then you and your husband are now split, I understand. Where do you get your support from? I don't know what relationship you have with your husband, but you've got two children, and you're a female in a man's world. And I know that there's a number of female listeners that are going, you know, that might be in the same situation you are as, of course, divorce is pretty common. Uh, what is it for you? Where do you, where do you, what's your resource for support, Andrea? Well, I have a great group of friends um, that have really helped me make adjustments. It's kind of funny when, when the nature of a relationship changes, then people start attaching different descriptions of you. Like the first time somebody referred to me as a single mom, I thought, are you talking about me? Like, it was really weird. Do you hold yourself as a single mom? Are you looking at when you said, are you talking about me? Because you don't hold yourself as a single mom. Is there something behind that? I think for me, I don't really hold myself like a single mom, because I think maybe the the title of single mom in my mind tends to be somebody who is in poor circumstances um not necessarily not working but there's a consistent struggle there to make ends meet is normal i think for most single parent families whether it's a male or a female because i i have different income streams i don't have necessarily that same financial burden. And I would say that, you know, my ex-husband is still very much supportive in, in different areas. Like he's a great help with the kids. He sees the kids a lot. Um, you know, he's a good provider, all of those things. And so it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's just getting used to the change. And I think that because I'm a very strong personality type. 
it doesn't matter to me whether I'm single or not, I'm going to succeed. And, and that relationship breakdown is not going to prevent me from moving forward. And I think that for, for a woman in a man's world, it can be even harder sometimes because we had to work so hard to gain the respect. And although divorce is probably fairly normalized these days, it's still another title to get used to, but I'm not really one for being or living up to labels, I guess, if that makes sense. I create my own destiny and I don't really care how other people perceive me so much as long as integrally I'm okay with how I am. You've achieved some really, you know, you've, you've hit some big milestones in your life in terms of what you've achieved in your investing and in your financial, you know, setting your financial future up for you and your family. If you were to give some guidance, and I know for you that being a contribution to the success of others is important. It's one of the things that you love to do. It's, you know, you're happy to get up in the morning because you know you can be a contribution to the success of others. You participate in mastermind groups. Uh, you lead mastermind groups, and that's all about education and all the things that you do. You know, I want to take advantage of who you are in what you've achieved as a female. And if there was some guidance that you could give to other women who are maybe wanting to follow a path, and I'm not talking about the path of, you know, you know, breaking up in a relationship, but I'm talking about the path of of having success as a real estate investor, as an entrepreneur, because real estate investing is not the only thing you do. Is there is there something that you would consistently say that you've discovered with women that you could give them some guidance around as female? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I've always looked at real estate, and I know Don teaches this and the Rain Group teaches this. It's all about the numbers. So for me, there's not an emotion attached to whether I purchase something. It's either the numbers work or they don't. And I know that I'm not the average woman. Um, I don't think emotionally, if you were to come over to my house, it's not decorated. That's not my thing. But for most women, they, they enjoy expressing the emotional side of themselves um, more than I do. And so I think there's an attachment emotionally to real estate investing about whether the house is pretty or not, what color is the paint inside, th those sorts of things, and the emotion surrounding the interaction with your significant other, if you're investing in real estate as a couple or not, and will my husband support me if I go down this investing road because I'm going to need his money or his credit if you can't do it on your own. So I see that for a lot of women, if they're not independent women, you know, like a single woman who's got their own money and their own credit and going forward, that sometimes I think that we, as women, we can just get locked into that emotional side. But real estate investing is all about the numbers. And you have to look at the real estate game as a long game. It's not just, oh, that's a pretty house. I think I'll put a tenant in it and, and buy into the sob story of the first person who comes along who you know, can't afford to pay all the rent, but can you really help me out? Those types of situations. And, and I've been through those and, and you have to be hard hearted. And so sometimes that's hard in property management if you're managing the property yourself, but you have to look at the end goal insight. The end goal is this long-term buy and hold is going to fund my retirement. And 
when you take the emotion out of it, it's so much easier to, to just move forward with the decisions that you know that you need to make. So if something's not working out with that property, with a tenant, then you need to be decisive and take action, not just see how it goes. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. And I can see where that's, that's the case, fe- female or male. Actually, I see, you know, in my own coaching and in my own observations of working with so many real estate investors and entrepreneurs, being able to take that emotion and park it over there and just get down to what the truth is, what the, what the numbers are in the case of real estate often and what the situation is. And, and that is difficult, I think, sometimes. And I want to say more so for women because they are more emotional, but I don't want to generalize in that regard. You know, you yourself are not built that way. And, and so you, you've been able to do that. Do you think that's a, was that part of, do you think that comes out of the training that you had with the forest? Was that part of your upbringing? You know, where do your parents fit into that whole and in defining who you are and the success that you've had, how much of a role did your parents have that and the force had in it, you know, early on for you? Well, my parents weren't overly emotional people and certainly being in the police department um, erased more emotion (laughs) from my life. I got in trouble for smiling too much when I was in police academy. And you've got a great smile. That's a shame. That's a shame. (laughs) But um, a lot of it really is learning what you need to do in order to have success and being open to to playing by those rules. You know, I used to laugh when, when Don Campbell or yourself or Russell Westcott would do training and, and at these rain meetings and then say, okay, well, I know all the women will follow what we just said and the guys, they'll try it for a little while and then they'll change it. Right. <laughs> so follow the system. And so when we follow a system, it's so much easier to take the emotion out of it. And that's the, that's a huge benefit to the RAIN group is, is you teach a system. It's a proven system, a system to follow. And, and it's just following down that path. And, you know, it's so funny. It's not just in real estate, but there's lots of systems for everything in life. If we want to release weight, not lose it, release it, because I don't <laughs> want to find it again. You know, we follow a system. And people get off track of the system, and that's what leads to to poor results or no results. And and I think that that whether you're male or female, emotion or non-emotion, if you're willing to follow the system and realize and connect that system to achieving your beliefs, as they say in Rain, what your end goal is, what your personal vision is, what your business vision is. If you're willing to put in the time, put in the effort follow the system, the system works. It's there for a reason. And that's at the end of the day, what it's about. It's commitment. How do you define success, Andrea, for you? Success for me is being able to travel around the world with my family and live a life of contribution. That's my end game. That's the success. And and if you're able to live out a bit of that each day or do something towards that each day, well, maybe success isn't the right word for that. But when I look at contribution, when I pass away, what will people remember me for? I don't want them to remember me for how much money I had in the bank. It's about what impact can I make in the world? So if I can leave a legacy or leave a contribution that impacted other people, who then those people impacted other people, 
that's really the ultimate for me. Well said. You know, I, I years ago, I did some uh, quite a lot of work. Stephanie, my wife and I did a lot of work with a guy by the name of Dr. John Demartini. And in that work that we did with him, he studied universal law and, and a number of things. And one of the questions that he asked us was, what do you want people to be saying about you in a thousand years from now? And, you know, to what you said, when you use the term legacy, we often think in, you know, what five years and 10 years or shorter periods of time. And what he did in that conversation was stretch us to say, when you look at contribution and the, and the difference you want to make in this world, what would you want people to say about you in a thousand years from now? And when you ask yourself that question, it really expands on what you're doing today and how important it can be if you want to leave a legacy. If you truly want to make a difference in this world, you think big and you think long term and it shifts, you know, how you look at the, how you view the world. So it's an interesting conversation about legacy. And so I would, you know, in, in the definition of success, how you described it, I think is, is, you know, it makes sense for me as in the definition of success for you. Like I get that totally. So that's kind of cool. In the world of real estate, you know, you follow the system and, and that's all very mechanical and almost utility. And so when we look at real estate, the result it gives us is the financial means, the financial wherewithal and that future you want for what you would define retirement. I got actually a couple of questions for you. Number one is, do you think people have to love what they do? Do you love real estate or what is it about real estate that keeps you going? The part that I love about real estate the most is negotiating deals. I love the idea of making a win-win for everyone. So for me, that's, that's the part that I enjoy the most about real estate. I don't enjoy the bookkeeping, so I don't do it. I don't mind property management, so I have a system around it to streamline it. And I think that's one of the things I've learned about real estate. When you treat treat it as a business, you're not going to enjoy every aspect necessarily of that business. And there's probably far better skilled people than you. So I get certain people to take care of certain things in my real estate business, and I take care of the rest. I enjoy the negotiation, meeting with clients, meeting with homeowners, meeting with different partners in the industry with my realtor and mortgage brokers and that sort of thing. But I also love how technology has made it so easy to do real estate, even when I'm outside of the country. For example, I, I got a call from a motivated seller and I was in South America. So I talked to him over Skype. He didn't know I was in South America. I just said, I'm not in town right now, but I'll have my business partner stop by and look at the house. So I had my friend go over, another RAIN member, take pictures, have conversation with the guy, just confirm what he told me, got those pictures sent to me, and continued to negotiate over the phone. And it's, you know, with things like DocuSign, it's so easy to do real estate from anywhere in the world that you have a Wi-Fi. And that's, that's really part of my end game is, I think, with technology, you don't necessarily have to live in that same area that you're investing in. As long as you've got good people on the ground, a good team and a solid base, you're good to go. Building your team, incredibly important, as you and I have both learned over the years. Now, you're relatively young. You use the word retirement. What, is, what does retirement mean to you? Because I think that 
it's being redefined as we speak, given how much longer we're living, giving, you know, given the health care that's available to us. What does retirement mean for you? What does it look like for you? I don't think I have retirement in my vocabulary. I think for me, it's more about when I have financial, complete financial independence, which I'm not quite there yet, but when I do, plus I've got my youngest child is nine years old. So I'm going to be living in Red Deer till he graduates high school, at least. So I don't quite have freedom of location yet. But when I do have freedom of location uh, and the money is there, which, you know, shouldn't be an issue by that time for sure. My end game is really to travel around the world and live that life of contribution and have multiple income streams. Um, I have more than one business on the go and I get a lot of enjoyment out of streamlining something to the point where I can enter into another business and learn some more about different aspects of marketing. Because at the end of the day, most businesses, it is about marketing. But just learn and stretch myself, see more of the world, live that life of contribution. I don't foresee myself really slowing down from that, if that makes sense. Like I'm not interested in the golf lifestyle of go play a couple rounds of golf every week. That's not kind of my style of retirement is to sit around and do nothing. And I think that's partly because if you look at statistics, the cost of living doubles every 15 years. So for me, looking forward, I'm 40 years old now. And I think the new age for a woman in Canada is 88 years. So I'm not even halfway through my life. But once my son graduates from high school, I'll be 48. And so I'll be just past the halfway point. There is so much of life still to live and places to go, people to see, businesses to make. And so I foresee myself just being a serial entrepreneur. And part of what attracted me to that kind of lifestyle is my oldest joint venture partner is 82 years old. And he has tons of different businesses. He can analyze a real estate property five different ways with pen and paper, no calculator. That man's mind is sharp. And he spends his time in Mexico, but he keeps a hand in business. It keeps your mind sharp. It gives you a reason to get up in the morning. And I don't foresee anything different for me. Do you think there are a lot of people who check out early? Because what I'm hearing you're saying is that, you know, like you're like me in that regard. Like I don't ever see myself stopping retiring. It's just not of interest to me. I've got too many things to do, too big a difference I want to make too much contribution I want to be. Do you, in your travels and in the work that you do, do you see people that are, have a tendency to want to say, you know, when I'm done, you know, when I'm I'm 55, I'm done, or when I'm 65, I'm done. I just want to be able to sit on the beach. Do you, do you run across those individuals still? I think the reality of the situation is in Canada and the U S people can't afford to retire anymore. The average person cannot afford to retire Uh, When I go down to South America, you don't work, you don't eat unless you have family to take care of you in your old age. And so I think for most of the world, people don't stop working. It's just that they don't have a choice. Whereas you and I have a choice to make that contribution. And so I think that 
as responsible people that it's it's important that you and I do everything that we can to make money to contribute to others to other causes that we believe in or to make a difference in education i i do feel very strongly that if i have been given the ability to make money it's my responsibility to make as much as i can because there are a lot of couch potatoes who have never considered what life could be like different for them because they've never had a supportive parent or somebody in their life encourage them to do better than what they are. Love that answer. What's your biggest failure that has been a blessing in disguise? Have you had any? Those drive that fork in the road or shift something? That's a great question. <laughs> There's certainly a lot of, um, when I first started my creative real estate uh, part of my real estate investing, there's definitely houses that today I would not buy. And it was, again, learning experiences, learning my way to success. Uh, just because it's a free house doesn't mean it's a good house. And I have, I have a property in a little hick town called Nobleford, which is just north of Lethbridge, Alberta. And I bought that place. It was a fourplex strictly based on price. And this is when I was a new investor. It was probably my third or fourth property, not creatively. I bought it for long-term, but it just reminded me, your question reminded me, and I still own this property today, but I looked all over the province of Alberta. Where could I find a fourplex at the cheapest price? And here it was in Nobleford, Alberta. And I was so young and fresh and gullible. The, the realtor told me, oh, yes, they had some water issues, but it's all been fixed. No problem. <laughs> so here I've owned this building that has flooded numerous times. I no longer rent out the basement because it's flooded so many times that it's not worth it. it I have a hard time getting insurance for that building, let me tell you. The only saving grace that I can see for this property, besides the fact that I've got principal pay down, it has been a huge learning curve. And I know because when, when you get stuck with these real dog properties, and I've tried to sell it a couple of times, I know now that what I will do in the future when I've got the capital to do it and the market timing is right, because right now it's not right. I actually have this fourplex, but it's on five lots. And the village at Nobleford is so open to me doing whatever I want with it, whether it's commercial property, uh, I could put on, you know, four townhouses, I could do something else. I can infill it with something else to turn it into a win. And that's, so although it might've been my biggest failure real estate wise, I think one day it might be one of my biggest wins because I took something that. I got into without doing my full research and due diligence when I was young. I've still owned that property. It still breaks even despite only having two out of four suites rented. And one day I'm going to turn, I'm going to tear that sucker down and I'm going to build <laughs> something else that will make it a win. So <laughs> it's just timing. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest things that I've learned over the last 12 years of investing in real estate is, you know, the, that real estate cycles book is so key because now that I've lived through these cycles, I know, okay, when 
now that these green shoots are appearing and the market's going to start to rise, you know, in a couple of years time, more or less based on what Don said, that's the perfect time to get rid of some of these dogs and to replace them with better performing properties. And so really it becomes playing the real estate cycles. Now is an awesome time to buy because everyone thinks it's a bad time to buy. So when everyone else is running away, I'm running towards it. And so learning these, these things is great. Swimming against the stream and not being a part of the masses, but setting yourself apart. You've over the years, it sounds like you've uh, invested a lot of probably money, but time and money into your education of all that you do. Now, beyond real estate, you're, you're really positive. You've got that attitude of positivity. Where would you guide people to get started? How would you, if somebody's listening to this and they're going, oh man, I got this job or I've got this career and I hate it or I don't, I'm not making enough money. I want to change my lifestyle. What guidance would you give them? And what would you suggest that direction that they start to take or some steps that they could take? Well, there's lots of great personal growth seminars out there. And truthfully, I haven't been to any of them. But I know people that have, and that's made a huge difference, like something like SI Seminars, which is PSI, SI Seminars, Landmark Education, that type of thing. Funny enough, most of my personal growth comes from my other business, which is network marketing. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people fail in network marketing very quickly because they're sold on something that they think is a get rich quick scheme. But it's like any other business. You got to market it. You got to work the plan. There's always a plan in these different companies. But a lot of what we do is personal growth. I've read a lot of personal growth books. So everything from The Secret to Bob Proctor to Demartini. Right now, I'm in the middle of. Um, Unstoppable by Tim Grover, which I'm really enjoying. Watched a lot of Tony Robbins, uh, Les Brown, anything that can can really switch your mindset. And, and one and one part, it's it's not just switching your mindset, but you know, for some of this personal growth stuff, you have to go back in history to your childhood and figure out <laughs> what went wrong, what made you the way that you are. Like, why? What? What was your paradigm growing up? What was your normal? And can we do a little bit better? Because our parents did the best that they could. But at the end of the day, I am a hundred percent responsible for every decision I've ever made. And when you take on that responsibility and you decide that you want to change something for you, you have way higher likelihood of actually achieving whatever it is that you want to achieve. But you have to really believe that you have everything inside you already that you need in order to accomplish whatever that goal is. It's such a great point that you make around responsibility, you know, and, and I know how I'm wired and and many of the people that I know that have a lot of success is that taking 100% responsibility for everything that's occurring in your life and not being a victim to it is probably the most difficult thing that people trying to achieve some great results have in wrapping their mind around not being a victim to something, not having all well, this happen to me. And you know, in, in the in the conversation of taking responsibility, when something happens, are you, I know I'm wired this way. It's like, what did I step over? What did I what did I miss? What was I pretending not to know? 
And so I, if I take the attitude that I'm 100% responsible for everything, I have to ask myself the questions of where am I responsible for it? What wasn't I paying attention to? What was I too lazy to do? What did I trust somebody else to do without following up or really knowing that they could pull it off? Do you have that similar thought process, uh, Andrea? Yes, I do. Absolutely. It's a, it's a lot of analysis of how can we do things better or where did I not take the step that I needed to take or what did I choose to remain blind to or what was I lazy in even? Was I too lazy to do a video sewer camera in a 1950s house that had trees in the front, for example? You know, just because I thought, oh, well, everything else looks good. Maybe I just won't do that. But it's, it's really about holding yourself to a higher standard and wanting to do better for yourself. You know, I, I see that on an ongoing basis when I'm coaching, you know, even groups of people is having the conversation about being responsible. It's such an important one. And I don't know anybody that has had the success that I would aspire to achieve that doesn't look at everything they do and say, where is that, you know, when something happens to them, where they don't ask themselves the question, how did that happen? Where did I miss the boat? Or what wasn't I paying attention to? And they may blame things in the moment and be angry about something in the moment. But ultimately, when they're reflecting on the situation, it always comes back to where you were responsible. And I wanted to just shine a light on that because I think it's probably one of the biggest things that get in people's way is they're trying to, they're often hold themselves as a victim to a circumstance instead of looking at where they stepped over a circumstance or were found themselves in that circumstance where they actually, they cut the path. They were the pioneer to their own path of circumstances. And so interesting topic, interesting conversation. As we wind down this conversation, I want to do, I want to have a little bit of fun with you, Andrea and, and, I've got some, uh, I want some, I guess some rapid fire questions for you. Just a little bit about, so <laughs> top 10 rapid fire questions. Um, what's your favorite swear word? I don't have one. You don't have one. You don't, you don't curse. Not very often. Okay, great. So darn it. Maybe the extent of it. <laughs> even as a, even as a former police officer, there's no F bombs and there's no, you know, you've got a great command of the English language, so you don't need to, uh, to swear. Uh, it happens very infrequently. <laughs> <laughs> but, but plus, you always get a smile on your face. You, don't, you, you know, it, what happens when you get angry? Do you get angry? This is off my topic, by the way, but. I do, but I am not a yelling and screaming type of person. You're just in control. Yes. That, that's a lot to do with police training. Sure. So it is training, can't isn't lose it? Your cool. It is training, it is. isn't it? Good for you. Yeah. I'm much that way. I don't get angry in a big, bold way. I mean, I, I have, I will on occasion with individuals in a heated debate, but, you know, temper just doesn't serve me. And, uh, and I think that we learn that as we go along, that the best results aren't in, and the best conversations are not had in moments of anger. It's like, don't send that email. Lessons learned. If you weren't in real estate, and I know that you've got other, you know, what other profession besides real estate or what, or what other entrepreneurial drift would you, path would you take if it wasn't real estate? I know that you've got your network marketing. What else would you do? Have you ever looked and kind of, oh, I wish I could do that? I think that it would be fun to hop on a cruise ship and be in charge of uh, sales at the different, you know, when they go into the different ports for sure. jewelry and stuff. And there's the the lady 
who always tells you which jewelry stores. I think it would just be a blast to to be on a on a cruise ship, maybe for no more than a year, but <laughs> just to to live some a completely different lifestyle and but be you know surrounded by people and traveling the world. What are you not very good at? Art. You're not an artist. No, no crafty things, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm no good at music. I, you know, I, I often joke that it's, I can't play the radio. Um, room, desk, or car? What do you clean first? Room. What's your favorite tune? The first one that came into my mind is Tennessee Whiskey. I forget who who sings it, but I'm not familiar with that at all. I'm gonna, it's a country song. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to have to look for it. What's your favorite movie? Dirty Dancing. And if heaven exists, whether you think it does or not, is secondary, what would you like to hear God say at the pearly gates when you arrive? Well done, good and faithful servant. On a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? Seven. <laughs> there, I, I, I've got no comment about that, Andrea. You don't. <laughs> I love you. I think you're awesome. I wouldn't put you at a seven. Um, in going forward, you know, as we kind of evolve with our children, you know, Warren Buffett talks about, you know, you, you know, whatever hundred billion or eighty billion that he's worth, he's leaving nothing to his children, enough to kind of get by on. What's your philosophy on your children? What are you going to give them? I think one of the the best books that I've read about that is called The Millionaire Next Door. But in there, it talks about um, generational wealth. When you create a business that your kids aren't very passionate about and you leave them that business, it's just going to get squandered. So it's kind of like you've wasted your time. I, I think what I the idea that I like is when I pass away is for them to receive an equal amount of what they make in a year. Oh, cool. If they make a hundred grand, then I'll match that hundred grand. Mm. You know, it's, yeah. it's, you know, kids are an interesting, you know, my daughter's now 31 years old and I'm actually a grandfather, but it shifts how you view the world and it starts to give you, you know, you pause and you think about what is important to children and, I think as parents, we want to make it as easy for our kids as possible, generally speaking. I think we want to support them, and that's the natural state of being a parent. But I've realized for me is that I've learned a lot because I've fallen down a lot. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've had to pick myself up. I've found myself in situations where I had to get out of them on my own. There was nobody there to pick me up. And as difficult as that was, and quite possibly how frustrated I might have felt that, you know, my parents didn't rush in to pick me up. It was part of what built me. It was part of the character that I, I find myself being today was because I've had those experiences. Do you think it's important for for parents to let their kids fall down? Now, in your, and I'm, this is me as a dad, you as a mom is, you know, I think the relationship with, that moms have with their children is always different. Um, that's just my own view of the world. Do you think it's important to let your kids fall down and pick themselves up and learn along the way? Absolutely. I've even toying with the idea of once they gra graduate high school to make them live on their own, even if they're going to college in Red Deer. Because I, I think there's a lot to be learned from work ethic. I worked all through university. I lived at home with my mom, but I worked all through university and I graduated after five years with $2,500 of debt. Mm. So I think that learning 
to manage money, learning how to do your own laundry, how to cook and clean. All those life skills are really important. And if we're um, coddling our kids and allowing them to live at home, you know, into their 30s or late 20s, I don't think we're serving them. I don't think we're helping them to be responsible citizens. And that's part of why my desire is to travel around with my family and to show them a life of contribution. That part of that dream will be accomplished before my kids graduate grade 12, because I want them to see how most of the world lives. Living in my house in a, in a city in Canada that's very safe, that's not how most people live. And I want them to appreciate that it's not just about money. It's about what we provide to others and, and how thankful and grateful we should be for what we have. Another interesting, you know, as you share that, that's also a, another interesting, it's common with those individuals that have achieved great results, have built a large net worth and businesses such as you is that they're very mindful and thoughtful about all of the things that they're doing and, and certainly mindful and thoughtful about how they're raising their children looking into the future. So I, I shine a light on it only because of how you just articulated what you did was about you being thoughtful and mindful. And I think that's just some good guidance for, you know, people that might be listening to this in reviewing how they're showing up and are you being mindful and thoughtful and are you thinking big picture and looking into the future for your kids and your family and having those thoughts? What insights in your life or business that you've gained and they've become obvious to you and they don't seem to be obvious to anybody else? Anything show up for you? I think that a lot of people don't realize how much work success is, that for an entrepreneur, quite often we're working all sorts of hours, that success takes time. It's not like you become an overnight success, although people might just think that you were lucky or that you timed the market right and that's how you were successful. They don't seem to see all the all the steps, all the stages, all the the effort, the money, the time, the persistence and the discipline behind it. It's not like you wake up one day and you've got six pack abs. It takes a long time to get there, right? And I'm not there. <laughs> but it's it's with anything that you succeed. A lot of times people from the outside looking in, it's like all of a sudden their eyes open and it might be three or five years later and they see that you're in a, a different car or different house. And they're like, well, what happened to you? Did you win the lottery? It's like, no, actually I buckled down. And while you were playing video games all day, I was out working it. Right. So I think that's part of the reason why it's really important to hang out with other like-minded, successful people at your level. And that's one of the pieces of advice I got from my 82 year old joint venture partner. He said, it's so important to surround yourself with people, you know, at the same level as you, because when it comes to money, people are so funny about it. You know, if, if you have money and they don't, they figure that you owe them, that you should pay for everything that, that they can just, you know, have that sense of entitlement. And you don't want that. You don't want to surround yourself with people like that. And nor do you want your kids to be like that, to feel that they're entitled 
to whatever it is that you have because you owe them. And so that's kind of what resonates for me. I'm a big believer that our life is a reflection of who we are as people. I am a believer that the people in my life are a reflection of who I'm being. And do you find that the case when we talk, go back and talk about being 100% responsible for all the results that we have in our life? You know, I'm not a victim to anybody that's in my life. So in other words, it's always a choice. If somebody's in my life that is what we'd call maybe an energy hog or doesn't resonate, I have to look at, from my perspective, I look at it and go, okay, where am I being that? Otherwise, this person wouldn't be in my life. You know, I, and I'll give you an example of that. I joke is that I have no charge around people who smoke dope, okay, or smoke pot or, you know, do marijuana. I, I have no charge around it at all. I live in British Columbia uh, most of the time now when I'm not in Alberta, but I've been out here almost 10 years. And of course, British Columbia is known as probably the marijuana capital of Canada. And it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And one of the cool examples I have about like attracts like is that in 10 years, I've never once been approached to buy or smoke marijuana. Not once. I, I can't honestly say that I've ever even known somebody to be a dealer or somebody who would actually offer that to me. And I think it's just such a statement of who I'm being or who Stephanie, my wife, is being is that there's no space for that. There's no space for somebody like that to show up. And when I look at who's in my life as friends, I'm pretty happy about it because I look at them and I go, if, if they're a reflection of who I am, otherwise they couldn't be in my life. I'm pretty proud of that because I got some great, great friends and great people in my life. Does that kind of philosophy or thought process, you know, ring true for you as well, Andrea? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as I lived in Red Deer for about 12 years now, certainly I've noticed the change from when I first got here and the friends that I had, you know, being a brand new real estate investor to being on the other spectrum in the here and now and, and the friendships that I have with a few close people are way more important to me than, than being with the crowd. And it's, it's kind of funny how over time you just naturally release some of those relationships because they're not serving either one of you really. And just surrounding yourself with high level people and having what, what I call number 10 friendships. So people that you can trust anything with that you would take a bullet for those types of friendships. Those are the kind of people that you want in your life. And you don't need a lot of them. You just need a few of them that are, uh, have your back, that are success minded, successful people and working together with them is just a real joy, a real blessing. That's a, an interesting uh, that you would take a bullet for. I'm sure that comes from your uh, police training, <laughs> but that's the quality of friends that you want to have. That's awesome, by the way. I, I love that. It's not about the quantity of relationships you have. It is really about the quality of the relationships that you have. You, have, you mentioned the 82-year-old joint venture partner that you have, and he kind of shows up as somebody that, how I'm hearing that, is that somebody that gives you guidance and that you really respect and that you listen to. Do you have some mentors in your life? Do you have people like that other than him? Or is, is he a big part of your life in that regard? Yeah, I have a couple of other mentors in my life. One of them is from my other business, and he's been financially free for the past 25 years. And he really helped me in 
my business in South America. We worked at it together and he is, you know, a daily accountability partner with me. We talk on a regular basis. And I think that's part of the reason why I love masterminding so much, you know, is is that opportunity to give that same kind of guidance to somebody else to pay it forward. Right. And so for me, I have, you know, two or three key people in my life that are mentors to me. And, and then being able to pass that on by being mentors to a few other junior real estate investors, I, I get a lot of joy out of that. The, you use the word accountability, um, a bit of an accountability partner. What is an accountability partner for you? What, is the, what does an accountability partner do for you? Several things. One, I feel very strongly that if I am going to say I'm going to do something, that I'm going to do it. And that if, if I don't do it, I need somebody to say to me, Andrea, why didn't you do it? Where's your head at? Is there circumstances change? So having that, that check and balance, but also that support is huge to helping me move forward, not only just in action, but in mindset. And when you have somebody that's got your back and also is further ahead than you in terms of mindset training and skills and abilities, you soar so much faster. You move so much quicker. Your success rate is is so much higher when you're with somebody symbiotically kind of that is helping you to move forward to maybe prevent a few of those learning experiences or sharing their learning experiences. And, it, and that's a great way of doing feedback when you have an accountability partner. And quite often he will say to me, well, do you want me just to listen? Or do you want me to give my perspective or share my experience? And so it's all permission-based feedback. But when we're open to feedback and we can give other people feedback in a constructive way, not a destructive way, it makes relationships with people just in general, so much easier and, and you can move so much quicker and cut through all the, all the crap. (laughs) You know, it's interesting is that accountability. uh, I think when we go back to what we talked about earlier about being a hundred percent responsible for the results that you're getting. And when you have an accountability partner and getting that and seeking that perspective, we all have our blind spots and you know, those things that we don't see in ourselves. And that's why they're called blind spots. And an accountability partner can provide you the perspective that you don't have of, of pointing out that blind spot, perhaps. And then you can see where you ultimately are responsible for it. And it's like going to the gym and having a coach or a, a training partner or, or a trainer. It's that somebody is there and that you've committed to saying, this is what I'm going to do. One of them is I'm going to show up. I'm going to eat right. And then I'm going to work hard when I get there. And so that accountability is really about somebody holding you to task and you doing what you say you're going to do. It's been very effective for you. And so as we, you know, use this as a, you know, this particular podcast as guidance to somebody, that's something that you would obviously recommend to anybody, I'm assuming. Yes, exactly. And there's ways to do it very structured or very formal or very informal. It kind of depends on the relationship that you have with your partner. But it's been a huge part of my success in moving forward. You talk about mastermind, and because you've you know masterminds, and I and I often hear people talk about uh, I want to join a mastermind. But having the experience that you have around mastermind, is there something that you would recommend? What would you 
guide people in paying attention to if you're going to be part of a mastermind or if you're going to set one up? Is there a structure without getting into a whole bunch of detail, but is there some fundamental structures that you would want to make sure that people look after? I would say that it's important that you have a range of different experience in there. For example, you don't want everyone to be a marketing machine because you need somebody who's good at other aspects of business. So it's nice to have a variety of experience or business. Another thing is a structure. It's very important to have a method of getting through the day. You don't want it to just be like a coffee date where people are randomly talking. And it's really important that everyone in the group get an equal opportunity to share their experience or to ask for support or help. Quite often, those quiet people who aren't maybe as chatty or as aggressive in in conversation have a lot to share. And if we just dismiss them to the side, we're going to miss out. So it's important to be with a like-minded group of people and variety of experience and and to have some sort of structure behind it. So do you then, when you're setting up that mastermind, Andrea, are you actually kind of getting an agreement from the group saying, this is what it's going to be about. This is the expectation. This is what we talk about. This is how we talk about it. Exactly. So there needs to be commitment and people are aware of what the commitment is upfront. And if they can't meet the commitment, then, then they shouldn't join the group. (laughs) But you know, it's not just about what a person gets out of a mastermind, but it's also what they give. So it's, it's a two-way street. They have to be willing to give and receive on both ends. It's not about hiding all your secrets because you don't want them to know, but you want all of their secrets. It's, it's not meant to be that way, and nor should it be that way. So it's mutual sharing. Now, does somebody wear the sea what i you know or what i call you know wearing the sea so does somebody kind of captain the ship or captain the mastermind is there generally a lead or do you share that responsibility for the masterminds that i'm doing now i tend to lead them to facilitate them because of my experience but in the original mastermind that i was in we had one person that originally was leading it and we shared different responsibilities and roles. And then occasionally we changed those different roles around so that everyone had an opportunity to, to contribute. I could go on this conversation for a long time because it's very interesting. You know, when you talk about accountability, when you talk about masterminds, when you start to look at how individuals such as yourself achieve the success as I interview and talk to more and more everyday millionaires, I see, you know, patterns of how they're being, how they're showing up. You know, today you've shared some great insights into attitude and uh, mindset. Some of the ways, you know, part of your journey is is pretty normal, although it was it's very interesting. And I find that, you know, historically uh, is always interesting. You know, you were in the police force, fascinating journey along the way. You've got a couple of children you've gone through divorce, you've moved your life, you've had forks in the road, and you sit here today and you're, you know, the better person for it. And you show up that way and you're a contribution. I want to say thank you for being on the show today. And I want to part with one question, Andrea. What are you grateful for today? I'm grateful for this opportunity to share my experience and I hope that other people can learn from it. I do too, and I'm sure that anybody listening will have gotten a couple of really important nuggets out of this conversation today. Thank you so much for your time, Andrea. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. 
If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.